podcast is brought to you by our headline partner, Opus Talent Solutions, supporting TEDx Bristol's commitment to nurture diverse and fresh talent. I had to go through friends saying to me at school, you're not allowed to come to my house because you're black. My parents will not allow it. We can be friends in school, but not outside of the building. That hurt. That cut deep. From TEDx Bristol, this is Reflect, Rethink, Reboot, a podcast about not just surviving, but thriving in uncertain times. I'm Becky Walsh, and in this series of three podcast specials, I'm going to be meeting some of the speakers who'll be taking to the stage at this year's TEDx Bristol on the 17th of November at Bristol Old Vic. And in this episode, how did we whittle down from hundreds of applicants down to the final 15? I'm Mel Rodriguez. I'm the creative director at TEDx Bristol. So we had about 300 applications this year for just 16 places. And we spent the summer meeting about 100 people who'd applied at speaker workshops that we held around the city to try to develop and nurture their ideas and get to know them a little bit more before making our final decisions. Really central to our mission is to give a platform to a diverse range of people and perspectives. We particularly look for people who don't already have a big voice in society. As a result, we deliberately try to commission talks from people who don't have much public speaking experience or who are from underrepresented backgrounds. In a way, we've made our job a bit harder, but the results have been truly transformational. I've met people from different walks of life who are doing utterly brilliant things in their communities. They're quite heroes, really, and I can't wait to share their stories with the world. This will be the third TEDx Bristol that Mel created since 2015, but far from being the only person who has a say in who gets chosen as a speaker, for every event there's a small team of volunteers, including myself. We work together to go through every application one by one, and trust me, we go through every single one of them. Every time there's an event, more people apply than before – but we'd like to think that our selection process gets a little bit more efficient each time too. This year, our wonderful technology partners, New Icon, built us an online speaker portal, which made our job so much easier. But also, we partnered with a great video sharing platform called Source, meaning that everyone who applied could upload a short video where they could tell us about their idea almost face-to-face. I want to talk about resilience to cope with this craziness that is the 21st century. It's so hard to sift through events, feelings and emotions and work out quite where to start. We need to reflect on how our existing behaviours are creating outcomes in the world that we don't want. My favourite topic of all is intersectionality. This is about understanding the interconnectedness of all the minority groups. Different ways of looking at things. It's really about seeing the world from a different perspective. We didn't really know what to expect because we've never asked people to upload video before, but they really went for it and hundreds of videos were uploaded to the Source platform. For my volunteer team who often work remotely, it was a really effective way to be able to see what people are like, see how they might come across, get a feel for their personality and what their talk might be like actually at TEDx Bristol. We had all kinds of clips. People had different backgrounds, props, costumes... And we had, in total, about 280 minutes worth of video to watch through. But it was a joyous experience seeing so many inspiring ideas from so many, mainly local, inspiring people. For the first time this year too, 
We held speaker drop-in sessions around Bristol, a chance for anyone to come and pitch their idea for a talk and also for us to meet our shortlisted speakers, find out a bit more about them, their idea and their story. It's a huge privilege to be part of a team who gets to decide who makes it onto a TEDx stage. But in all honesty, the standards of applicants here in Bristol are so high, with so many passionate people and inspirational stories, we really are spoilt for choice. So let's meet another of our 2019 speakers. Aisha Thomas is a born and bred Bristolian. After starting out studying law at the University of the West of England, a chance meeting with a young offender changed her whole outlook on what she wanted to do with her life. She's now a leading figure in the region's education system and has presented a BBC documentary about the lack of black teachers in Bristol. She's also helped launch a new curriculum to help better represent black history in what has been found to be the most racially segregated core city in Britain. Aisha's talk at TEDx Bristol 2019 is called Perhaps If You Were My Teacher, I Wouldn't Be In Prison Today and will challenge us all to consider how our decisions and journeys could inspire the next generation. Hello, Aisha. Hello. So can you tell us a little bit more about that chance meeting that changed everything for you? Absolutely. It's really interesting because when I reflect now, we're talking about 10 years ago. So it's really hard to kind of take stock of what I've been through. And 10 years ago, I was absolutely adamant I was going to be a lawyer, I was going to be successful, I knew exactly where my pathway was going to take me. And I was quite clear about what success meant to me. And, you know, working at the Prince's Trust as a volunteer, I was working with a number of different young people trying to help them to get back into community. And there was this particular young man who stood out for me and he stood out because I could see that he was different. There was something that he kind of had to say and share, something he wanted me to understand. And whilst talking in one of his last meetings, that's when he stopped me mid-conversation and said, perhaps if you were my teacher, I wouldn't be in prison today. And that shocked me because I couldn't quite understand what it was that I could have done that could have possibly changed his life. Clearly, I was not an educator. I had nothing at all to offer him. And yet for him, he really wanted to break it down for me. And then he started to explain the fact that within his life, he'd only seen white, male, middle class kind of examples of success. And so whenever he had his narrative, it was quite specific. It was very much, you know, go into sport, go into entertainment or go into crime. And he didn't see any other representation. And he said, you know, I wasn't good at sport Mm. and I wasn't good at any sort of acting or entertainment. So I took the only route that I thought was left for a black boy. And that was clearly crime. And so he went down the pathway of drug dealing because that was all he thought he could do. And that was when I thought to myself, wow, I am in a legal system which actually is trying to remove a child from a process, from a system. And I'm thinking, actually, I'm getting into this too late. But what if I could possibly get into the system where I could help a child to perhaps not take a pathway because I could show them there was an opportunity to see a different narrative and a different set of representation. And that's when I thought, law's not for me anymore. Whilst it could be quite easy to stay where I was and make money and be successful in that way, I didn't think I was adding any value. And so it was time to change my life as well as change other young people. So, I mean, wanting to be a lawyer yourself, so you were aiming at a good high kind of place to be. So what was your childhood like? Um, My childhood was quite interesting. Um, So my mum's a primary school teacher, so she was very academic, whereas my dad was very much um, hands-on, hardworking, very much a kind of like... um, 
like a lad's lad type of dad. <laughs> That's definitely my dad. Um, and very much like, you know, get his hands dirty and really graft. And so I was kind of stuck between two different kind of outlooks on life, really, and what was the best way to move forward. But my mom was very much ab- about me understanding the importance of academia and that she truly felt it was a passport into a different pathway in your life. Mm. And I guess she had had negative experiences of education herself. And she kind of I guess, perpetuated the same rhetoric to us, which was as a black person, you're going to have to work harder. Your representation isn't there. But if you can give yourself better qualifications, give yourself better understanding, your life is going to be much easier for you in the long run. So I guess I bought into this ideology of certain professions, certain privilege, certain class would put me in a position where I would have a much easier life than perhaps if I took a different pathway. So can you tell us, you touched on it there a little bit, but what was your mother's childhood like? And you sort of said it was quite different. Yeah, so I guess my mum had a very difficult childhood. So my mum grew up in a time where she saw signs that said no cats, no dogs, yeah. no Irish, no blacks. Yeah. My mum grew up in a time where she absolutely had to go through racism on a day-to-day basis. You know, she wanted to be in the school play, she wanted to be in the nativity. She was told she couldn't be an angel because she was black. Ugh. And yet somehow they managed to find the role of a slave in the nativity. Last time I checked, there wasn't a slave in the nativity. Oh my God. And yet for my mum, that was the role she had to play. Oh God. And so I guess she grew up with a very negative viewpoint of black people mm. and what position they um, kind of held in society. And so as a result of that, not consciously, but unconsciously, she put that on me and my brother. Yeah. And we began to then grow up with that social isolation. So... I ended up going to a school in South Gloucestershire, so it wasn't actually in central Bristol. So I'm in a very multicultural, vibrant society. I'm seeing people of different races, different nationalities. And yet my mum decided academically I wouldn't achieve if I was in this environment. So she sent me to a school which was predominantly white middle class. And so I walk into a whole different environment now. And for the first time in my life, I realise I'm black. My race became an issue. Yeah. And... That was not just academically, that was also socially. I had to go through friends saying to me at school, you're not allowed to come to my house because you're black. My parents will not allow it. We can be friends in school, but not outside of the building. That hurt. That cut deep because I'd never had that experience before. You know, and I had experience, unfortunately, of teachers who would say things such as, here comes trouble. Well, I haven't done anything. I'm purely walking down the corridor. What have I done that would insinuate trouble? And then certain words that would be used such as aggressive or intimidating rather than passionate Mm -hmm. and committed. It was all about choice of language. And I guess in my education experience, I only ever had one black teacher in my entire schooling. And um, it's quite interesting when I look back now because I felt that I wanted to be drawn to her, but I didn't feel like that was reciprocated. And I think that was almost because, and I'm putting words into her mouth because we never had the dialogue, Mm. but certainly I think the weight of having to be that black teacher who has to then draw to every black child because I'm the only representation that they see was a burden too big. And I think as an educator myself now, I can kind of understand her position. That must've been a very, very heavy weight to carry. What do you think is the psychology behind someone like yourself and someone like your mum who, given a particular narrative, goes, right, I'm going to make some changes, I'm going to do something amazing in the world, or against the the young lad that you met who was like, well, these are my choices, rather than going, and I'm going to fight against them, more, I'm going to go with this flow. What do you? What, what's the difference in a person? Is it... 
the education? Is it upbringing? Is it messaging? What changes psychologically, do you think? I think it could be multifaceted in the sense that I think I always had a mother that was constantly championing what it meant to be a black person in society, good or bad. I also had someone who was very academic. So I guess from that perspective, it was always you'll be a lawyer, you'll be a doctor, you'll be an accountant. Yeah, It was very almost narrow to an extent as to what my options were. I never considered an apprenticeship or perhaps, you know, I'm going straight into work. That was not an option. You were going to go to university and it is that simple. You can choose your degree, but you will not choose if you're going to university or not. So from that perspective, I guess I didn't feel like I had a choice. And I think my mom putting me in that environment meant I was around more like-minded people where everybody was going to do A-levels. Everybody was going to university. That was the norm. But I also think it was something about, actually, I think for me, this came from my grandparents. I've had to see my grandparents come here from the Windrush generation and they had to fight for what they have. So I think that sense of rawness of I need to make something of myself. How could I sit here as a fourth generation person within this country and almost turn away from the struggle that my grandparents went through to ensure that I had what I have today. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't turn my back on their struggle. I stand on the shoulder of my ancestors. So I needed to make sure that the experience I had was meaningful and that I truly did something powerful that could not just help myself, but help you for future generations. How proud is your mum now? Oh my gosh, she's like beaming (laughs) she's so happy and you know is she coming to see your talk yes she will absolutely be there with my mum my dad my brother everyone will be there flying the flag saying representation matters they will all be there but I think you know more than that I think it was a big commitment to do this type of work yeah I am putting my head um, above the parapet. Yeah. I am exposing myself. I am opening up myself to challenge, to criticism. And often, you know, the topic of race isn't something that people always want to discuss. People say, you know, oh, you know, slavery's over. We don't need to have these discussions anymore. And actually being in a time now where this is probably on the table more so than it has been for a very long time, I think, particularly when we look at Trump era, we look at Brexit, these conversations are needed now more than they have been for a very long time. But putting myself in this position, I make myself vulnerable. But I think this is not about me. This is about the next generation. And as as a mother of two children, how can I possibly not be part of the fight? I've got to be. And who are your role models? Who do you think, well, I am like now? Oh, it's really, really interesting because I think it's very easy to pick, I think, um, people that everybody knows because that's simple enough to do. I think on a day-to-day basis... For me, first and foremost, it has to be my mother. And when I say my mother, I look at her and I think, wow, the level of resistance and resilience that she's had to have in her everyday life. Because she didn't get a cheerleader from what you're saying. No, she didn't. And she's had to battle against constantly being told that she's not good enough, being told, leave your blackness at the door, (sighs) being told that, you know, we're not interested in your racial issues. She's had to go through that throughout the education system. So for her to come through that and be so powerful for me... She absolutely has to be my role model. She is the person that I look at and I say to myself, wow, that woman, I'm so in awe of all she's achieved because she's a phenomenal woman. And I couldn't, I wouldn't be here today if I wasn't standing on her shoulders. So why do you think you went down education rather than law? Because let's face it, you know, I would imagine with kind of like, you know, yeah, your high end, large money, brilliant lawyer hat that you could maybe represent more people or something that you could do in a law field. Why do you feel that going backwards into education is more important than law? 
I think for, from a legal perspective, I felt like it was almost um, reactive rather than proactive. I feel that people will engage in um, legal systems when they need something. Yeah, so it's, it's too late by it's then. Almost, it's far too late. Okay. And you're already part of a justice system, particularly if you think of criminal law, for example, um, and I think about young people and then being criminalised. Well, you're already down a pathway. But with education, we're looking at the next generation. We're looking at our future leaders of this country. We're looking at our future educators, the people who are going to shape the future world. Imagine if you can change their discourse, mm. then that's got to be something you, you really want to be a part of. That is where you get sustainability and legacy. And it's more than money. Yes, I would earn much more money had I stayed on that pathway. But this isn't about money. It's about life chances. It's about changing people's futures. Yes, you can have money in the bank. But am I going to save a life by doing that? Probably not. But in education, I might be the one person that changes the pathway for somebody. So changing that pathway, looking at the education system, what are your biggest frustrations? What's your bugbears? I've, oh, I could be here all day. <laughs> How long have we got? Um, I think, I guess... I guess it's really obvious and I have to start with the most obvious for me is the lack of cultural awareness and understanding. And the reason why that frustrates me is because I look specifically, for example, at the curriculum and you have a curriculum that has a specific narrative and it perpetuates the same ideologies again and again and again. And it doesn't serve any communities to constantly hear the same rhetoric. So if you have a white child, for example, and they are constantly hearing about supremacy and superiority, if their only dialogue about other communities is negative, if they don't see any positive representation, then you begin to believe some of the, the information that's fed to you now because you have no other way to challenge that narrative. But equally, I think for children of colour, if you constantly hear that you have not contributed, you haven't done anything for society, you constantly believe you have nothing to bring to the table. Well, well what am I here for? What's my value? What can I do? So then the cycle perpetuates between the same communities again and again and again. And that's without us even considering things like privilege and class. But then when you get beyond that, you think about, OK, well, how are we training people in different professions? How are we educating and, you know, the role of the teacher is the first role that any profession is going to start with. And yet we're not doing enough to make sure that those educators are respected, that they're recognized, but also they have what they need to do a good job, regardless of their skin color or background. We've got to invest in them. That's that's paramount. So so how has Bristol become the most racially segregated core city in Britain? That's quite a claim, isn't it? It's massive. And yeah. to be honest, I think I always had concerns about racism in Bristol for a very long time. I've grown up here. I'm a Bristolian, born and bred in that sense. However, it wasn't until I really read the Running Me Trust and I realised how stark it was, it almost became reality as if to suggest someone took off the rose-tinted glasses that I'd somehow tried my hardest to keep on yeah. for a very, very long time. But then I think when you think about why is Bristol in the place that it is in, you have to go backwards. And you have to think the massive part that Bristol played in the slave trade. When you think about it, it was one of the biggest slave ports, if not the biggest within the United Kingdom. We are fundamentally intertwined. Like, you know, our universities, um, many places in Clifton and Redden are all built off the back of the slave trade. Mm. When reparations happened, it didn't happen for the slaves. It happened for the people who had to give up their slaves. So when you think the equivalent of £2 billion in today's money was given to a, a small proportion of people in Bristol, and that money then built these businesses that are still existing today, you have to think to yourself, well, why is it segregated? Because we, we perpetuate that. We started that cycle. That's how we've built Bristol. 
And Bristol very much has silos. So you can go to places like Clifton and Redland and it's very, very affluent and much of these issues will not affect you. But you will go to Eastern and St. Paul's and you see very much multi-diverse um, communities. You're beginning to feel a very different level, a different sense, different sense of deprivation. But this doesn't just affect people of colour. You go to South Bristol and you see, you know, white working class who are truly suffering also from this segregation. And then that gets... Um, perpetuated for them too because it then begins to think okay well well what are we getting what are what are we achieving and that then creates isolation between the two communities so how could education change that title how can we use education to kind of you know because because you know they said the children are our future so does this start in our schools how we can change bristol does that start in the schools absolutely we have to be the change we want to see and to an extent it's harder to change adults because a lot of us can be set in our ways about what we think and how we conduct ourselves. And that's a much harder conversation to have. But when you meet young children, and I'm talking right back to nursery age, mm. we are at a point in our lives where we can still sow the seed of difference. We can truly begin to accept one another. I did a, an assembly in a primary school a couple of weeks ago, and it was all looking at certain things that black people had com um, contributed to society. So we looked at um, a super soaker and we looked at um, CCTV and also the three light traffic light system. And when I told the children that these had been created by black people, oh, my goodness, you could hear a pin drop. And then a little girl said to me, and it was a little white girl, she said, Miss, I didn't know that black people could make things. She had no idea. And then the little black boy said to me at the end, Miss... One day I want to be an engineer. I didn't know I could make things. These are five-year-olds. So when you think about how powerful that is, and yes, it's emotional and it's very upsetting. And you think to yourself, goodness, really? 2019, how can these children think like that? But where else are they going to learn it? Who else is going to challenge that narrative? But if we are having those conversations now, those two children will never forget that conversation. They will now look at the world very differently. So we can get into those young children as young as they possibly are. We can sow a very different seed. Yeah, that's a really, really positive outlook. So reflecting on what you were told, perhaps if you were my teacher, I wouldn't have been in prison today. Have there been any instances as a teacher when you feel like you've become that positive role model who has the power to shape a more positive future for somebody? Absolutely. And more and more than, than ever, to be honest. I'm in a particular situation now where I'm working with a particular cohort of young people, particularly those who are at risk of um, serious youth violence and criminal child exploitation. There are children who are being groomed every day to get into crime. And when you are already in a place of poverty and you're in a place of desperation, the idea that you could earn 5, 20, 40, 50 pounds or the idea that somebody will give you food in exchange to carry a bag or... or so we're or, talking county lines. Yeah, county lines. Yeah. We're talking um, real serious youth violence, whether it's about drugs or blades. These children really need somebody to convince them that there is another way. And if they don't see somebody who looks like them, who comes from their area of deprivation, somebody who can speak to their reality... It is hard for them to believe that taking a different pathway is the right one. But I can literally look them in the face and say, I've been through what you've been through. I've lived in your communities. I've had your experience. And there is another way. Why would you want to risk your life? And it's about trying to explain to them that there's a different pathway that you can take. And when you have young people who are coming to you and saying, Miss, thank you for listening. 
Thank you for giving me an opportunity. Thank you for never giving up on me. Thank you for not allowing me to fulfill a stereotype. Then I'm absolutely doing something that might change somebody's lives. And I, and I won't get everybody. I absolutely won't. And there will be some people who 5, 10, 15 years down the line, oh, remember that thing that Miss Thomas said to me? But there might be some right now that I can take away from a certain pathway. And I've seen that already. I've seen young people who've come back to me and said, Miss, I'm so grateful for what you said because I'm now doing something different. And as long as I'm changing even in one child's life, then I've definitely done the right thing. Um, official uh, government stats for 2018 showed that 93% of head teachers in the UK are white British. How do we get more black teachers into education? How do we do that? I think it's difficult because I think generally teaching is not in a good place. And I think that's you know really, really important to note first and foremost. It's not just about black teachers. But when you think about black people in, in particular, you have to then break down what their barriers are. Getting into teaching is expensive. So if you already come from a marginalised community, you're already from in an area of deprivation, well, well, how do I afford to get through my first degree and my second degree? When you think about your own experiences of education, so you know if you've got a mother like mine who's saying, I saw these signs, it was really difficult within my education, why on earth do I want to go and join that and become an employee? Uh, no, I'll go into something else. And then you've got to think about, even when you get into the profession, about retention. It's not just about recruitment. Mm. There are many, many black teachers who are in the profession but leave because they don't get opportunities because they still continue to experience microaggressions. I've mm. had them before. I've gone to events and, you know, with, with colleagues and you'll see the sign that says assistant principal and they will give the assistant principal badge to the white person next to me. And I'm like, that that's that's mine. I'm the assistant principal. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. Really? Mm. Or I'll get to meetings. Oh, are you sure you're in the right room? Yeah. I'm the assistant principal. I'm supposed to be here. And I had a particular experience with a with a super head um, who was working in a certain school. She said, oh, Aisha, I don't mind you. you, you you're one of the good ones. <gasps> oh, my God. You're the one of the ones that can speak English. Now, this is a super head who's been put in a school to make change. And yet she's saying that to me. And I'm gobsmacked because I'm thinking to myself, well, one, I only speak one language anyway. Shamed about that. I wish I could speak a couple more. But that aside, she's saying to me, I'm one of the good ones. And you're about to make change in a school that has 85% children of colour. So if that's what you think of me, what do you think about the children that you are trying to help and support? And so when I tell people these things, it's not because I'm trying to shock or astound you. I am literally trying to tell you about my everyday experiences. It is why I'm so passionate about what I'm trying to do, because all of these undertones, all of these microaggressions that continue to happen, those are the reasons why children continue to to kind of unattain within school. And that's the same at um, early years. It's the same in secondary. It's the same in um, universities as well which has been very public. There's been lots of inquiries into, for example, University of Bristol. What can they do to make sure university students continue to attain and stay within academia? There's clearly something that the education and system is doing to black children. What are we willing to do about it? That's my question. It's a really powerful question and it's something that you're going to be answering on the TEDx Bristol stage. Trying to. (laughs) Trying to. I have to say, talking to you, Aisha, I think that you're going to go a long way to not just answer that question, but to actually really be able to change perceptions. I hope so. And this is the great thing about TEDx Bristol is we are giving a global platform really to ideas like yours, which is going to be incredible. How nervous are you? I'm extremely (laughs) nervous. I keep panicking, thinking I'm going to get on stage and I'm going to forget my words. 
I will make a decision. Having talked to you for, for this time in this podcast, there is no way you're going to forget your words. In fact, it's more like, hang on, stop. Stop, stop. And another thing, I haven't finished yet. The other speaker has to wait. I'm going to keep talking. It will be awesome. But I do appreciate everything that TEDx Bristol has done. You're a phenomenal organisation. You're really fantastic people. And I just appreciate the time and the space and the platform. It means a lot. Oh, well, it means a lot to us to get you on the platform. We're super, super excited to have you there. So thank you so much for your time. Really, really good to speak to you. Thanks so much to Aisha for joining us and sharing her story. You can catch her alongside of 15 other inspiring speakers at TEDx Bristol 2019 on the 17th of November at Bristol Old Vic. For more information on our speakers and how to get your ticket, visit TEDxBristol.com. A huge thanks to our headline partner, Opus Talent Solutions, for making this podcast possible. You can find out more about them at opustalentsolutions.com. Join me for the next of our podcast specials, where we'll be meeting another one of our speakers and finding out how our speakers get from selection to stage. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast. It's free. Just tap subscribe on your podcast app. And if you enjoyed it, tell your friends. Thank you.